This is Warning Radio with Dr. Jonathan Hansen, founder and president of World Ministries International, a non-denominational end times ministry dedicated to fulfilling a divine commission to trumpet forth warnings from God concerning the imminent second coming of Christ and the impending judgment of God upon the ungodly. God has sent Dr. Hansen to many nations of the world with a solemn warning to the political and religious leaders and citizenry to repent of their sinfulness and wickedness or face the catastrophic judgments that will soon be unleashed upon the unbelieving world. Listen now to the warnings of our compassionate and merciful Creator conveyed through His faithful prophetic spokesman, the host of Warning Radio, Dr. Jonathan Hansen. This is Dr. Jonathan Hansen. Today I have another program for you by Pastor Ty Goldstrom. Originally recorded January 24, 2004. I was out of town speaking in Texas, and he spoke on the good news of Jesus Christ. God bless you. Sit back and enjoy this message. Jesus Christ said a lot of things on his three years or so of ministry. I believe it's the Apostle Luke, the physician Luke, that said that if he was to report all the things that were said and done by the Lord Jesus Christ, I suppose they would fill all the books of the world. That's a tremendous thing to say for a three-year ministry, amen? But of all the things that Jesus said, there are very little quotes, words that he said upon this earth that match Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. Hanging upon the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. If you were a soldier in the first century, you would have saw many crucifixions. I suppose that they had shifts and rotations that you might have once a month or twice a month. But crucifixions was one of the mainstays of judgment in the first century. Unlike America, they didn't just throw masses of people into prison. Yes, they had prisons, yet they did not throw the majority into them. They executed them. And so as much as a guard in a prison would be used to prisoners, so a Roman soldier in the first century would be very used to watching people die upon a cross as they stood at the foot. And if you can imagine the majority of people that would be led to a place like Golgotha, being led upon the hill, usually required to carry their own cross. If you can imagine the majority, I bet they kicked and screamed and yelled and shouted, resisted and fought. And if you were a Roman soldier, this would have been commonplace. This is what you expected on your shift. Yet, over 2,000 years ago, there were Roman soldiers that would be on duty at Golgotha, and they would see a man who they called Jesus of Nazareth, who was supposed to be the king of the Jews, a kingdom that he said is not of this world. He walked towards Golgotha, freely laid himself down upon that cross, as the nails were inserted, did not reject, did not fight, did not try to escape. And when he was hung upon that cross, he did not speak words of cursing, did not show areas of resentment or bitterness, but he uttered the words, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. Today I want to speak on, I was trying to think of, you know, because Bob always comes up at the end and says, Ty, what's the, what's the title of that sermon? And I was thinking, well, maybe I should give him a title. And I don't know what the title is other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ, that's what the title is. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to look at that passage, that short utterance by Jesus Christ as he hung upon the cross. And I guess in many ways it'll be an expository preaching in that we're going to look at this and we're trying to find the background of what that means. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we will do it by going backwards because I believe that that utterance really is the end. As he gave up the Spirit and said, Unto you I commit my Spirit, Father. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is really the end. And to really figure out what that means for us today, we need to get the context of Scripture, what led up to that point where he had uttered those words. Father God, I pray a blessing upon this word, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we can call upon the holy name of Jesus Christ. That you have given us good news, Lord. The gospel. And I pray, Lord God, that this word would come forth with clarity. That it would come forth with deep conviction, power, the Holy Ghost. They would find hearts that are receptive, hearts that are hungry, hearts that want a deeper and more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that it finds men and women, children, that would not say that they are content with their relationship with you, Lord. But it would find people that say, I want more of my Lord, more of my Jesus, more of you, Lord Jesus. To find the hearts of men and women, children that would say, I want to take on the full maturity of Jesus Christ. May this word, Lord God, be anointed. And may it find hearts that are thirsty and hungry. Bless your word. Anoint your servants. And anoint the hearers today. Let us not, Lord God, merely be hearers of the word of God. But let us be doers of the word of God. We commit now this time, Lord, for your glory, for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. My first question, I guess, would be, who are the they? He uttered his plea to the Father to forgive them, for they know not what they do. My question is, who's the they? Who is the they? Is the they merely the soldiers that put the nails through his hands? Is the they merely the religious leaders that would side with Judas? because of jealousy and pride and envy, would condemn him to death? Who is the they that Jesus uttered this popular verse? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 says, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And then Peter gives the ultimate example. He says in verse 18, For Christ died for sins once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. So Peter here is saying, if you suffer, it's better to suffer for righteousness sake. And to give you an example, let's look at the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't get more righteous than Jesus. He is God. Yet he suffered and died for the unrighteous. Jesus said upon the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. Peter says that he died once for all and for all sin. What put him on the cross? What held Jesus Christ to the cross? Was it nails? 
Was it betrayers? Or was it sin? It was a sin, not merely of the soldiers, not merely of the religious leaders. It is a sin of all people in all time. That's who Jesus died for. Are you with me? That's what kept his hands upon the cross. It wasn't nails. The scripture says he could have called down legions of angels to set him free. It was sin of mankind that held him to the cross. And so as Jesus looked out, he wasn't looking at the eye of the man who had the hammer. He wasn't looking at the religious leaders that were in the background watching from afar. He was looking out and seeing all throughout time and saying, they know not what they do. They is me and you, amen? Because in our sin, it is true, we know not what we do. We do not ascertain nor comprehend the consequences of our sins, but through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Deception, which is brought on by sin. When we're in our fallen sinful nature, deception comes upon us. That's why I prayed that when we hear the word of God, we will not merely hear it, but we will do it. Because if you only hear it, deception will come upon you. Because when you encounter the living God, when you encounter Jesus Christ, when he in some way touches you, whether it be for a physical healing or through the word of God, when you encounter Jesus Christ, it necessitates a response to righteousness. When Jesus called Matthew and said, come and follow me, if Matthew would have said no, there would have been negative circumstance for that. Amen? When Jesus Christ comes and woos you by the Spirit, nobody comes to the Father unless the Son draws the man. When Jesus Christ comes to you and He woos you and reveals Himself and the need that you have for Jesus Christ, the covering for your sin. If you reject that call, there is negative circumstance. There is negative response to that. It is not neutral for you to say yea or nay. Too much that has been given, much is expected. That's why Jesus, when he healed the crippled man at the pool, came back and says, now sin no more or something worse will come upon you. Because Jesus understood that he, that crippled man, received divine intervention. Crippled for years and years and years, now healed by the power of God. Jesus understood that if he now rejected the living God, that something worse would come upon him. That's why we have to be very serious when we hear the word of God. Because you cannot hear the word of God and remain idle. You cannot hear the word of God and say, that's interesting. When the word of God comes forth with anointing, it must be met by response. You're responsible for the word of God. Amen? Jesus said, forgive them. Now this is where it gets really important. When Jesus says, forgive them, to forgive necessitates the fact that there is right and wrong. Amen? I'm going to use a little logic here. Is that okay? I've never taken a logic class in my life, but this, this is going to be logical. But it's important because we read the words, but we've got to understand the context of the words. Jesus said, forgive them. Forgive Ron. Forgive Tom. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. If you forgive somebody, doesn't that mean that there is some standard of right and some standard of wrong and you've judged them that they did wrong to you, yet you've forgiven them? To forgive says that there is right and there is wrong. There's a standard in which we judge. I have here that the identification of a standard puts into motion the potential for exacting justice. What does that mean? That means 
If there is a right and there is a wrong, and the possibility of forgiveness is there, also the possibility of justice is there. If there's no right and no wrong, there's no justice. How would you have justice? Whenever we try to exact justice, we try to identify what is right and act justice towards what is right. But if there is no real right or wrong, no standard, then there's no justice. Does that make sense? To have justice in the court systems of America. And somehow you got to be going towards a direction. you got to say, this is what's right. And this is the circumstance. And justice says that we must do this. The whole justice system of the world and in the United States is based on the fact that there has to be some right and a wrong that's identifiable. Now, I am not saying, I'm not an advocate for the justice system of America. But I'll tell you what, if you went back in the history of America, if you went back to the foundation of American law, if you somehow went to the library and could find a book, say, in the 1700s, that was a law book, it would be filled with Scripture. Every law that was established in the United States had some scriptural notation next to it because it was founded on the Word of God. And so I can be an advocate for the justice system of America in its inception, in its beginning. But I'll tell you what, morality always changes law. Law never changes morality. That's an important concept that would take probably 10 minutes to explain. But we change the laws to reflect the morality of the United States. The law never changes morality. This is a concept that Paul would pick up on and say, the law is a curse. It only exposes and says, shame on you. It cannot empower you to change. It's only a flashlight, always on your darkness. It is there to signal, to complain, to condemn. It cannot change your behavior, your morality. And so in America, when you see laws changing, don't blame it on those who are making the laws. Blame it on the morality of America. When they pass things like abortion, it's not about a few lawyers and a few judges. It's about the morality of America that's changed. If you went back to 1950, would say, and tried to pass the same law, it would have never passed. It's when the morality of America changes. And then that sets up the place where they can change laws to reflect the morality of the United States. So the sentence I said, again, the identification of a standard. When we say there's a right and there's a wrong, that puts into motion the potential for exacting justice. Now, the thing they still do in the justice system of America today is, they have you put your hand on the Bible, don't they? Now, if that's not the epitome of hypocrisy in America, I don't know what it is. But at some point in history, it was very symbolic and very righteous. What were they saying? They were saying that in this court, we affirm that there is a right and there is a wrong. And our process is to find justice. Justice is not a good term or a bad term. Just like reward is not a good or a bad judgment. Recompense, it's not good nor bad. It is simply what it is. When we say God is a God of judgment, people instantly say, that's negative. That is not negative. Judgment and justice are synonymous. Justice is saying you will get what you reap. You will reap what you sow. That is justice. If you do it unto righteousness, your judgment will be inherit the kingdom of God. If you say, I don't want anything, I reject the name of Jesus Christ. I will do it my own way. Jesus will say, fine. You will have the judgment of God. But your judgment will be eternity separated in the pit of hell. 
Are you with me? Justice, judgment, reward, recompense, they are not positive nor negative terms. They are simply what they are. You reap what you sow. So again, why am I talking about this? Jesus said upon that cross, he said, forgive them. So he's saying there's a right and a wrong. I judge them as being wrong. Who? You, 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 everybody. They're wrong. They knew not what they were doing. All of our sins put Jesus Christ on the cross. It wasn't the sin of Judas. It wasn't the sin of the religious leaders. It wasn't the sin of the Roman soldiers. It was all of our sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. And he said in that light, in that understanding, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're under deception because of sin. Forgive them. I judge them as being wrong, but Father, forgive them. The justice system of America today is all about justice and not forgiveness. Justice and judgment and forgiveness are not the same thing. Now, I had a chance just a few days ago to talk with a person that I don't think she understood that she was a Unitarian, but she was definitely a Unitarian. She was raised in the Catholic Church. I didn't get into much of her detail, but based on discernment and just some of the comments she made, she was in a very negative atmosphere in the Catholic Church. Very law-oriented. Very penance-oriented. Saying Hail Mary, saying this, saying that. And there's a time in her life that she had so much of it that she just rejected it. And where did she go? She went to the very farthest extreme that she could find. What is that? That's a place where there is no justice, there is no judgment, because there is no right and no wrong. A Unitarian would say that we find out truth based on our own experience. Well, the truth for me might not be the truth for you. Now, how you logically put those together, they don't care. Because they say that we're not basing our faith on intellect nor logic, but based on experience. Here's a short excerpt from a Unitarian website. It says, we believe that everyone has the right to seek truth and meaning for themselves. The fundamental tools for doing this are your own life experience, your reflection upon it, your intuitive understanding, the promptings of your own conscience. The best setting for this is a community that welcomes you for who you are complete with your beliefs, doubts, and questions. We can be called religious liberals. Religious because we unite to celebrate and affirm values that embrace and reflect a greater reality than self. Liberal because we claim no exclusive revelation. That's important. We claim no exclusive revelation or status for ourselves because we afford respect and toleration to those who follow different paths of faith. We are called Unitarians because our traditional insistence on divine unity, the oneness of God, because we affirm the essential unity of humankind and of creation. So Unitarians, by definition, reject the Trinity. They reject Christianity because they reject the possibility there could be a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. God is one. And every person goes through life and they have experiences. And those experiences kind of bounce them back and forth. And somehow through that experience, they can relate to God and become more like Jesus Christ. Now, I had some interesting conversation with her, and I asked her, I said, have you ever been hurt in your life? She says, yes, I've been hurt. I said, did you forgive those people? She said, yes. I said, based on the fact that you've forgiven somebody, you said there's a right and a wrong, and you've exacted justice. You've exacted some kind of judgment upon that, that there is a right and there is a wrong, and I choose to forgive them. Yet you're telling me that you cannot judge. God is not a God of judgment. He is not a God of justice. 
but by your own mindset, by the way, you just told me, you already said there's a right and a wrong because you said you forgave somebody. Forgiveness always necessitates there's a right and a wrong. You've got to capture that. You've got to understand that. How can you forgive somebody? What are you forgiving them for if there's no right and wrong? If everything goes, which is the theology of a Unitarian, then you cannot forgive anybody. For what are you forgiving them for? They didn't transgress you. Because there's no standard, there's no right, there's no wrong. How can you forgive? And so you can ask us a few questions and all of a sudden they're in a theological quagmire. Like that word? Quagmire. They're in a theological quagmire. And where I left it was, in essence, you're in a theological quagmire. And it's not my responsibility to get you out. I will present truth to you. I was respectful to her. We parted on good terms. But I said, please consider what you are purporting to believe. God has given us a brain, amen? The brain is there for comprehension, for apprehension. We can use the brain. God doesn't say, take your brain out, and I want you to relate to me apart from your intellect. That is not the will of Jesus Christ. Use the brain, transform the mind, the scripture says. Take captivity every thought and imagination to the obedience of Jesus Christ. He wants to transform the mind. He doesn't want you to have a lobotomy. He doesn't want to separate and say, nothing can be analytical. I don't want you to think about it. No, just go by faith. Blind faith. That is what a Unitarian does. Blind faith. No standard. No justice. No forgiveness. And I told her, and this was probably the strongest thing I said to her, because this is what the Lord gave me. The scripture says that Jesus said that I have come to save who? Sinners. I have come for the unrighteous. I have not come for the righteous. What does he mean? Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none that are holy, no, not one. I think he was being a little facetious. In your own mindset, if you think that you do not need a Savior, if you consider yourself righteous, a good person, Jesus cannot help you until you come to grips with the fact that you are a sinner. He came for the unrighteous. He came for the sick in soul and in spirit. He came to save those people. But if you'll never confess your sin, you will never have salvation in Jesus Christ. And so I told her, Jesus came to save the unrighteous, not the righteous. You must see your need for a Savior and respond to Him. He loves you. He died for you. On that cross, He said, forgive. And I used her name because she knew not what she did. She didn't understand the air of her ways. But now you can see that Jesus Christ wants to forgive you. I want to look at quickly justice in Scripture. I hope we are all together. That whole introduction was just to establish the fact that if Jesus can hang on the cross and say forgive, He by definition must say there's a right and there's a wrong. And He chose to forgive. Well, are we there? Justice can only be put into motion on the foundation that there is right and there is wrong. Okay? Justice in Scripture. If I was to ask you and said, I want to know what love is in the Scripture, where would you say to go? What passage can I go to in the Scripture that would somehow define love for me, show me what love is? Is there one place, one Scripture, if someone came up to you from the street and says, I've heard about this Jesus and the love of God, where could I find it? Where is the definition of love? What Scripture tells me about the character of love, the qualities of love, the attributes of love? Hopefully you'd say, the great love chapter. And then you'd say, that's found in the book of 
Chapter? Ah, oh, praise God. That's good. Chapter 13. Now, if somebody came up to you and says, I've heard about your religion, your belief system, and that your God is a God of justice. Where in the Bible can I go? I know it's probably all over. Where can I go, though? I want to be able to go and read one passage, a, a portion of passage, and figure out the justice of God, the standard of right and wrong. Where would I go? That's not as easy, is it? But I'll tell you right, that's pretty close. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Amen? What is the Spirit of God saying in Deuteronomy chapter 28? Now, most of the translations they put as a subtitle, blessings for obedience, blessings for disobedience. Right? But you could equally put in a subtitle and say, justice for obedience, justice for disobedience. Right? Because we've already said that reward, blessing, recompense, they're all the same thing. You reap what you sow. So, Deuteronomy chapter 28. We're not going to read it today because it would take too long, but basically the Lord is saying, if you do these things, I will give you a recompense. That recompense will be blessing, protection, healing, right? Deuteronomy chapter 28 will tell us. And the part about disobedience, he says, if you do these things, you will get a reward. You will get a recompense. That will be disease. He says, the disease of the Egyptians will come upon you. If you choose to live in the recompense of disobedience, all of the diseases, or none of these diseases. Amen? Recompense, reward, justice for the acts done in the body. I want to look at a couple scriptures to set this up. Leviticus chapter 24. God is a God of justice. Can you say amen? amen. God is a God of judgment. Can you say amen? amen? God is a God of reward. God is a God of recompense. That we have to understand. There is an account for your life. There is an account for your decisions. There is not idleness. There is one way. And one way for righteousness. One way for obedience. Leviticus chapter 24 verse 17 says, If anyone takes a life of a human being, he must be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, whatever he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so is he to be injured. Okay? Okay. Stay with me here. Genesis chapter 9. I'll afford you a couple of seconds to get there. Oh, this is exciting. You already know the end. That's why you can, you can get excited about preparing a sermon. You know why? Because you get to do it twice. You already know where you're going with this thing. Praise God. Chapter 9, verse 4 says, But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. Verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Still with me? Judges chapter 16. We're going to do two more verses. Judges chapter 16. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Chapter 16, starting in verse 28. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me, O God. 
Please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Remember, they had gouged his eyes out and they captured him. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. So did God honor his prayer? Could he in his own strength push two huge pillars? Have you ever seen the size of the pillars back those times? Sometimes they were 6, 8, 10, 12 feet in diameter. And he pushed against two of them and busted the whole thing, and thousands of people came down and died. No man could do that. God honored that prayer. I want you to keep that in mind. Finally, Jeremiah chapter 18. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Chapter 18, verse 20. Here's a lament by Jeremiah. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they have dug a pit for me. Remember that I stood before you and spoke in their behalf to turn your wrath away from them. So give their children over to famine. Hand them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives be made childless and widows. Let their men be put to death. Their young men slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring invaders against them. For they have dug a pit to capture me and have hidden snares for my feet. Verse 23, But you know, O Lord, all their plots to kill me. Do not forgive their crimes or blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. You with me? What do all those passages have in common? They all speak of justice. They all speak of reward. They all speak of recompense. They all speak of blessings for obedience or disobedience. All of these people, Samson, Jeremiah, the Lord himself, were demonstrating that God is a God of justice. Remember what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for what? For teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, and training in righteousness so that every man may be prepared for good works. Every scripture we just read there is divinely inspired. You must grasp that. Divinely inspired. It is not just some flippant word of man. That is God's word to you. He is saying, I am a God of justice. When Jeremiah was crying out and saying these things, bring these things against my enemies. This was a Jesus Christ. God himself was saying, I am a God of justice. That was not just the will of Jeremiah. That was really the will of the Holy Spirit. That they have sinned. They have come against my righteous one. I am a God of justice. There is blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. You've got to grasp that. If you don't grasp that, you don't grasp Jesus. You don't, you don't understand what the cross means. You've got to understand that God is a God of justice, of judgment, of reward. You do reap what you sow. Amen? I have my notes, the next part here. It says, relation between justice and the cross of Jesus Christ. I have on the left, justice, judgment, law. And then I have on the right this word that we started with in Luke chapter 23, forgive them. And it speaks out and it makes you answer the question, how do I reconcile the two? 
How do I reconcile what I just read throughout Scripture? How do I reconcile justice, judgment, law, and Jesus at the cross saying, forgive them for they know not what they do? How do I bring those together? How do I understand the words of Jesus upon the cross when He can say, forgive them? We've already gone through the fact that we, but He's saying forgive them. He said, there is a right, there is a wrong. You are a God of justice, Father. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus would say, forgive them for they know not what they do. How do I bring these two together? How many times throughout history and even today do we hear people talk about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament? They act as if God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are schizophrenic, as if they're multiple personality. There was even people in the first couple centuries of the church when they were trying to figure out which books are divinely inspired. Everything that had to do with judgment was thrown out. Thus, about 90% of the Old Testament. And they put their books together based on their concept of Jesus Christ, New Testament, because in their mindset, there was no reconciliation between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. How many times do we hear that in young believers that don't understand the Word of God? They can't grasp or understand the Old Testament because it speaks of judgment, it speaks of death, it speaks of law, it speaks that you shall surely die. And Jesus says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now I ask you, and it doesn't take much brains to figure out, which one tickles the ears of man? What message do you want to hear? We love to hear, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But I submit to you today, that you cannot understand what that means, unless you understand the totality of the Bible, that God is a God of judgment, a God of justice. Justice is not merely something that God Himself exacts. It is part of His character, His very nature. That is important to understand. He's not like some judge, human judge on the bench, who sits up there, listens for a while, and then says, guilty, not guilty. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jesus Christ, who the very character, part of who He is, is justice. He must exact justice. Why? Because it's part of Him. It's not merely something He does. It is who He is. He is a God of judgment, a God of justice. And now we must reconcile the cross of Jesus Christ. We must reconcile the words of Jesus Christ. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. First Samuel chapter 15 and verse 29 says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, it says, I, the Lord, do not change. Are you there? I, the Lord, do not change. Amen. Why? Why is that important? He says it right here. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. That is a powerful verse. You could preach on that verse for a long time. If God was a God who could change, that would say that there's imperfection within Him, wouldn't it? We change because we realize there is imperfection. <laughs> we want to change. Why? Because we're continually faced with the glory of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God. And we see, whoa, like Isaiah, woe is me. Like Peter, depart from me for I am a sinful man. We're always encountered with that. But Jesus says, I want to shape you into my image. 
I want you to be conformed to the full maturity of Jesus Christ. Thank God that it does not change. If he changed, that would be so important. Why? Because if he changed, that means he's not perfect. And if he's not perfect, he is not the perfect sacrifice. You are dead in your sins. That is important. This is why we study things like systematic theology and learn fancy words like omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Why are we describing these things? Because it's so important to realize that Jesus Christ is God. He is perfect. He cannot change. And that is important. I change because I'm not perfect. He cannot change because He is perfect. Amen? So the God that was in the garden with Adam and Eve, the God that sent the deluge, the great flood, the God who delivered His children out of Egypt, the God who sent the prophets one by one, the God who sent His children Israel into captivity, the God who in the due season of time was sent His Son Jesus Christ, it is the same God. He does not change. Amen. The very same God that judged the world and wiped out the entire population other than Noah and his family. That is the same God who hung on the cross and said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You've got to understand that. You've got to accept that. If you don't, the cross means nothing. You can't understand it. Why do I need the cross? Why do I need Jesus? Why did he have to come? Because God is a God of justice. There is a demanding for your life. We read it. There is a demanding for your sin. I said it in different ways, but I have in my notes, Therefore, if God is a God of justice, and if God cannot change, then the words of Jesus upon the cross are immersed in the justice of God. You say, how? How was when Jesus hung upon that cross? Where's the justice of God? What do you mean? We read these Old Testament things about the justice of God. An eye for an eye. A fracture for a fracture. A tooth for a tooth. We read about Jeremiah seeing people that were coming against. He was trying to deliver the word of God, which would bring salvation. He was trying to deliver the word of God, which would heal, set free. They rejected the word of God. They were trying to kill Jeremiah. And Jeremiah would say, bring upon them the recompense for their actions. That's all he was saying. Let them reap what they sow. That's all he was saying. He wasn't being nasty. He understood the judgment, the justice of God. Now, he wanted the timing to come right now. Can you say amen? <laughs> he didn't want to say, oh, wait, Lord. He wanted to say, now, Lord, do you see my position, my situation? They're coming to kill me. Bring that recompense, that reward right now. You can understand that, can't you? How many times does David in the Psalms cry out the same thing? How many times does he lament about, Lord, hear me in my desperation. Bring recompense to those who are after me, trying to kill me, trying to destroy me. He wasn't praying out of the character of God. He understood the character of God. Now he was probably trying to push the timing of God just a little bit. But we know, don't we, that every man shall have his deeds judged. There's a time of judgment, a time of reckoning for every single person, from Adam to the last. Every single person, their actions, their deeds done while in the body, they will be judged. Because God is a God of justice, a God of judgment. So you say that when Jesus hung on the cross and said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Where is the justice of God? Turn to Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 50. Let's get the context. Let's see what was going on. Remember in 
Whenever you try to interpret scripture, you do not look at one scripture. You do not look at Luke chapter 23 and verse 34 and try to understand the whole thing by when you look what's going on. The Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God, didn't just write the Gospel of Luke. Amen? He gave us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He gave us four individual, distinct examples from different perspectives, all inspired by God Himself. I almost look at it as taking a picture from four different angles. You're always looking at the same thing, but it's from four different perspectives, all divinely inspired, based on 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. We'll start in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. When they came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and peered to many people. Verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Now I'll come and make a comment just in a second, but I want you to turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 33. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jumping down to verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, and saw how he died, and saw how he died. How did he die? Kipping, screaming, cursing, no. And surrender. And speaking words like, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. When they saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 44. Luke 23, starting in verse 44, it says, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirits. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Verse 47, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God. Praised God. Now, my belief is that that centurion probably did not believe in Jesus Christ at the beginning. But when he saw this man, there was something different. Though he had seen hundreds of crucifixions, there was something different about this man who could utter from the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He's never heard that one before. It pierced the darkness. It pierced his deception. He encountered the living God like one of the two thieves that were next to him. One with bitterness and anger, rebuked the Son of God. The other received the Son of God. So I believe this centurion, though he had seen hundreds of crucifixions before, was pierced in his darkness by the light of Jesus Christ. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight and saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. That's powerful. They beat their breast and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. 
I contemplated as I was preparing about how much I wanted to go into many of the things that happened around the death of Jesus Christ. And it could spend again about a half an hour going back into Scripture and showing examples. But I think that we all understand the Scripture enough to say that when darkness came over the land, what was that symbolic of? Earthquakes in Scripture, what is that symbolic of? Is it not judgment of God? Darkness came over the whole lands. God is a God of justice. Can you say amen? Jesus Christ is a God of justice. Can you say amen? When Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was immersed with judgment, with recompense, with reward. Darkness fell over the lands for three hours. The earth shook. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine being one of the soldiers and watching this happen? Can you imagine for three hours, boom, it's dark out. The earth is shaking. People are coming up from graves. What is that symbolic of prophetically? When shall people rise? Is it not at judgment time? Was this not a first fruits in some ways? All of those physical manifestations spoke of. It was the outward manifestation, the physical, the natural manifestation that God is a God of judgment. Judgment was happening on the cross. Justice was being exacted at the cross. But I have good news. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says the triumph of mercy over justice. The mercy of God. How do you reconcile the judgment, the justice, and the law of God with Jesus saying, forgive them for they know what they do? The only thing that bridges them is the mercy of God. Mercy triumphed that day. Can you say amen? The mercy of God. Now when I say that mercy triumphed over justice, I am not in any way saying that justice was put away with. You've got to understand that. God did not end up that day saying, no longer am I a God of justice. That would be saying like himself, who I am, part of who I am, I'll just put away. He is still a God of justice. He is still a God of judgments. So it's not that justice was done away with, but Jesus stood in the way of justice. He stood in the way of the justice that should have been measured against us. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. Sin still begets death. You gotta understand that. Sin still gives birth to death. That is a law of God. It will never change. Before the cross, after the cross, it doesn't matter. Sin still begets death. James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James, after the cross, the laws of God do not change. The character of God does not change. Sin begets death. So what have we said? We said that to understand the words of Christ upon the cross, to understand when he can look out and look at all people at all time. We read Peter who said that Jesus Christ died once and for all, for all sin. He looked out and saw every person that would ever be created, saw their sin and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There is a right, there is a wrong. You are a God of justice. You are a God of judgment. Yet in the midst of that, Lord God, Accept my sacrifice. Let the mercy of Jesus Christ intercept 
the recompense that should come to me. A gross analogy would be someone hitting a baseball and it comes right at your face. And but for the glove that would catch that ball, there would be destruction to your face. That's why Jesus Christ can say, no greater love does a man have than a man who will lay down his life for his brothers. This is exactly what he did. He laid down his life for you and me. He intercepted the recompense, the justice of God. He did not say, I do away with it by my blood, by my sacrifice. He's saying, I will take it for you. That is the good news. That God is a God of justice, yet He intercepted it. He caught it. He took it upon the cross for you. Only He could have done it. Why? Because He's the only one that's perfect. He's the only one that's unchanging. Praise the Lord. This is why Jesus Christ could say on that famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you. That's what He could say. You have heard a times of old. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say unto you. This is where it starts to preach. This is where the theology must be put into motion now. Because Jesus is saying, as I have intercepted and took the justice of God upon me, now I send you. Amen? Like I mentioned before, the justice system of America is basically an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. What I mean by that is, when they consider you guilty, when they exact justice upon you and you're guilty, they try to somehow formulate what can happen to this person that would equivocate the crime that he did. Whether it be rape, theft, or murder. Basically, in the spirit of our law, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus said it's not going to be so with you. Amen? Amen? The justice system of the church is the mercy of Christ who bore our transgressions. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that he was stricken for our transgressions, pierced for our transgressions, and made intercession for our transgressions. Acts chapter 7 and verse 54 through 60. The stoning of Stephen. Remember his words when they were ready to throw rocks and kill him. He knew he was going to die. And he echoed the words of the Master, the words of Jesus Christ. He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In effect, he was saying, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The mercy of God triumphing over justice. When we present the gospel of Jesus Christ, we cannot be fragmented in how we understand Scripture. Because there's so many Christians today that cannot reconcile the God of the old with the God of the new. And we must be able to tell them that there is no old and new with God. Jesus is Jesus, God is God. Before Abraham was, I am. He has not changed. He still requires payment for sin. There is still justice and judgments. The good news of Jesus Christ is not that God pushed away justice. It's that He took justice with His hands pinned to the cross. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That He bore our transgressions. He bore the justice, the judgment of God. That's why all the physical manifestations, that's why the ground shook and it became dark. Why people came up from the graves. 
is because God was showing his justice, his judgment. This is why Jesus Christ could say, God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath and judgment of God was coming against Jesus Christ. He bore it for us. That is so understanding. That's, that when you read the scripture, when you read the Bible, that's what you're responding to when the Jesus Christ comes to you. If you've responded to Jesus Christ in any other way than that, then you better check and make sure it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this is the good news. That Jesus Christ took the justice of God. Praise the Lord. This is the good news that we should be preaching. He bore our infirmities. I'm going to close, but if I had another hour, I'll let you know where I would go. I would go now. We've established the fact and we understand what it means when Jesus Christ said those words. We understand that there is a right and a wrong. We understand that that makes a foundation for a chance of justice. And we read the Old Testament where it's basically showed the justice and the judgment of God. We understand now that Jesus Christ came not to nullify the law of God, not to push away the law of God, not to throw away the judgment of God, but to take the judgment of God. When we understand that, we can respond to that in faith. But now, what do you and I have to do? Now there's much word to the disciple, the father of Jesus Christ, about how we should treat others who trespass against us. If I had another hour, that's where I'd go. I would talk about the parable of the man who had a debt that he could not pay. It would have taken him ten lifetimes to pay that debt. Yet the one he owed the debt to says, I erase that debt. And soon as he was forgiven that debt, he went and find someone underneath him that owed him only a small amount. Yet he took him to court and exacted every penny from him. And when the man that, gave, that forgave that huge debt heard about that, remember the judgment that came? You remember what he said? I believe without checking it, it's one of those famous gnashing of teeth. What is Jesus saying here? What he is saying is that for you to be a person in position with Jesus Christ, if you really say and affirm, and if it really has happened in your life, where you understand that Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God, the judgment of God, took your sins, and yet you turn around and find someone that's sinned against you, has debt against you, someone that's hurt you in the past, and you're not willing to forgive them, then Jesus is saying, you really haven't responded perhaps to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is some other gospel. Because if you really understood the debt that I paid for you, a debt that you could never have repaid, the amount was so huge, so big, it would take 10 lifetimes to repay. If you really understood that, and you saw this little persecution, rejection, form of gossip that came against you, you would have no problem forgiving them. Amen? This is really the litmus test of your salvation of how intimate your relationship is with Jesus Christ. If you have difficulty forgiving others, then you do not understand the words of Christ upon the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. If the justice of God came on the Jesus, and you stand behind Jesus Christ, protected from the judgment of God, and yet you turn around and allow the justice and judgment of God to come upon another person, then you really do not stand behind Jesus Christ. You really do not accept Jesus Christ for who He is and who He came to be. And if I had another hour, 
Then I'd go into what pastor's going to go into the next few weeks. The etiology of disease. Because when you hold unforgiveness in your heart, bitterness in your heart, I tell you what, that is the seedbed for disease. Emotionally and physically. When I get a chance to talk with people at work, patients, when the Lord has me ask them questions about their life, about their past, they usually come in for a physical or an emotional problem. But I'd say nine times out of ten, you ask four or five questions, and you see all the hurts, all the pains, all the rejection, all the unforgiveness. It makes sense why they're in emotional or physical problems. It makes sense. You reap what you sow. If they weren't having emotional or physical problems, I would have a problem with that. If they were blessed by God, had no problems, no worries, but had all this junk within them, I would have a problem with that. You reap what you sow. If you're filled with rejection, filled with unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, and rage, you should be an emotional and a physical wreck. If you're not, something's wrong. Because the Bible that I read says you reap what you sow. And the Scripture says that a seed bears what after its own kind. So that's where I would go. Because I believe that the life of a Christian should be always open to the Spirit of God showing some area of hurt, bitterness, frustration, anger that might be within us. Because I believe that as we come into the maturity of Jesus Christ, He will bring to our remembrance things of the past. Things that you even have caused yourself by self-defense mechanism to shut out. Hurts that were so deep that only Jesus Christ could go back to that time and break down that wall to spiritually take that abscess and break it apart. The closer you get to Jesus, the more He'll reveal these areas in your life. Amen? There is no one in this room that can say, I have searched my heart. There is no hurts, no bitternesses, no frustrations, no anger. I don't believe it. I believe that the closer you get to the holiness of Jesus Christ, He will reveal your unholiness. Why? Not because He hates you, because He loves you. He doesn't want the bitterness, the frustration, the hurt, the pain, the anger within you. He wants to heal you from that. This is how you have emotional and physical well-being. I had the chance about, I think in October, to go to a medical conference, and I, an elderly physician lady had a wonderful presentation on the correlation between depression and coronary artery disease. And she did a fantastic job, and there's many studies to prove it, to show that people that are depressed have a 20-fold higher incidence of coronary artery disease. Now, how many cardiologists in America would affirm that? Very little. What do they do? We'll treat the blood pressure. We'll treat your cholesterol. Yeah, this is what they do. I'm not saying that's all wrong, but what I'm saying is, she did a fantastic job of showing the fact that the emotional well-being of a person, that low serotonin level, has a profound impact on the body has a profound impact on the hearts and the arteries. That people that are depressed have far more heart attacks and diseases. But I'm in the process right now of writing her a letter. Because as wonderful job as she did, I believe that if you look at like a cartoon, and a cartoon usually has five or six boxes, and it progresses from stanza to stanza, right? I believe that the endpoint coronary artery disease, 
She went back a couple steps and looked at some things that are behind it to get more of the story. But I believe she forgot the fact or doesn't understand the fact that we are body, soul, and spirit. That when someone's depressed, why are they depressed? Yes, you can go and you can measure the serotonin level and say, yes, it's low. That's going to cause problems from their hearts. But instead of giving them Prozac, might I submit that we go back to the beginning of it and figure out what happened that caused them to be in a position to be depressed. Wouldn't that be the logical choice? So yes, she criticized medical providers, and rightly so, for throwing all sorts of blood pressure medicines and cholesterol medicines at many people who have an emotional problem that needs to be treated. And her suggestion was, we should throw Prozac. She was guilty of her own advice. And I was going to gently point that out to her. How about we go back farther in the etiology? She was working on the etiology. She just didn't go back far enough. Where does it start? In the beginning, God. That's where it starts. In the Garden of Eden, choice. God in the Garden of Eden says, I am a God of justice, judgment. This is all yours. This is not yours. Do not touch it or you will surely die. God was saying there's a right, there's a wrong. And justice will be exacted against you based on your choice. Jesus Christ came to take the justice of God upon himself. And as we study the etiology of disease, I believe it starts in the spiritual realm. Depression would have never happened to any person on this earth if it wasn't for the fall of man. Amen? Every disease, emotional and physical, started in the Garden of Eden. When what component of man was severed from relationship with God? The spirit of man. The soul of man was still there, corrupted now, but man has always had a mind, a will, and emotion. But at one time, all mankind had a spirit that was in direct relationship with the Father. That was severed. That is the initiation point of every curse upon the land and upon man. Every disease, emotional and physical, happened because of the spiritual corruption of man. That is the real etiology of disease. You cannot go further back than in the beginning, God. And so I, I'm going to write her and try to evangelize with the good news of Jesus Christ. Because like Paul says, we see but now through stained glass. She sees through her own stained glass. But Jesus Christ wants to give her a bigger vision. Jesus Christ wants to reveal himself to her. That she can understand the beginning from the end. Jesus says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. All things are understood by me. Praise the Lord. The etiology of diseases. I trust that Pastor Hansen will go into depth about all these things. Amen? One thing that I have found, and one thing that the Lord revealed to me, to taking this last class on building the world's largest church, is that to have an effective church, people need to be grounded and rooted in the fundamentals of Jesus Christ. That's where we fail. You go up to the average Christian and say, explain salvation to me. What does it mean to you? You will get some very interesting answers. I'm talking about the fundamentals. I'm talking about if you go to the average Christian today and say, why did Jesus Christ have to come and die? I don't understand why Jesus Christ, God himself, had to come and die on a cross to save man. Why? I would say to you, maybe one out of ten would give you a at least decent answer to that. And that is sad. 
And that why is why the church is in turmoil. Why the church has no foundation. Because they don't know the very principles, the elements, the fundamentals of their faith. How can you preach it? How can you evangelize it when you don't understand it yourself? This is one of the reasons why the church in South Korea was so powerful. Because there was evangelism, yes. But there was discipleship, accountability. That's why it was successful. Because the people understood what Jesus Christ did. They understood the gospel. They understood that there is right and wrong and God's a God of justice. And Jesus Christ had to come because He's the only perfect one. The only perfect sacrifice. That He took all the justice, the judgment of God upon ourselves that we might not have it for us. This is why I spoke on this topic today. Because we need the fundamentals. We need the fundamentals. You know, I believe this group is more versed on things that are much higher because of who is teaching us than some of the lower things. I mean, understanding the science of judgment is not an elementary doctrine in a lot of ways. Now, judgment is, because obviously when you talk about justice, you're talking about judgment. But talking about the science of judgment and what brings a curse, all these things are not elementary. We understand those better in some of the fundamentals. And what happens if you build a building and have a whole lot of weight up top and not a very good structure underneath? It collapses. We need a strong foundation. I think that pastor, if it, when, we, when that future, when we start cell groups, I believe he's going to go hard on the fundamentals. Hard on the fundamentals. Why? Because you cannot evangelize with someone else if you don't understand the fundamentals. And so today we talked about the fundamentals. The mercy of God. The mercy of Jesus. The judgment. Justice of God. The forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for bearing our transgressions, Lord God. We thank you, Lord God, that you are a God of justice. That you are a God of judgment. We thank you, Lord, that there is a right and there is a wrong. We thank you, Lord, that it's not up to our own imaginations and our own experience to try to figure that out. But you have given us a holy standard of faith, the Word of God that tells us what is right and what is wrong. That our duty is only by the power and the grace of Jesus Christ to conform ourselves by obedience and surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to understand these fundamental doctrines, Lord God. Again, we want to pray a blessing on the team in Texas, Lord. Bless them this afternoon, this evening, Lord. Protect them and encourage them. Again, bring healing to our families, Lord. Let the blood of Jesus Christ cover this ministry and cover our families. Bring healing to our families, Lord. Bring healing to our families, Lord. Heal us physically. Heal us emotionally, Lord God. The work on the cross has been done. You have paid the price. You have paid the price. My sins may be worthy of eternity separated from you, but for the grace of Jesus Christ, the mercy of God. Thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. Bless, Lord God, my sisters and my brothers. Help them, I pray, in this next week to meditate on the word that we spoke today that was spoken today, Lord God. Let it inspire them. Because when they understand the fundamentals that were spoken about today, they have the tools, the gospel, that they can evangelize others. Because that is the gospel. We are worthy of death, but Jesus Christ, but the Lamb of God, who was slain from the foundation, that we might have life. 
Help us to meditate on these things, Lord God, for they are worthy. And mixed with faith and anointing, we can win many souls to the kingdom of God. Let us make ourselves available to be jars of clay, vessels that can go to the highways and the byways. Wherever you may have us, Lord, the gas station, the grocery store, the workplace, that we would seize the day, seize the moment for the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless my friends, Lord. Bless your word. May the word that went forth today be watered and grow by your Holy Spirit. We love you. Give us now a good evening, Lord. We commit ourselves to you. We commit our families to you. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Warning Radio with Dr. Jonathan Hansen, founder and president of World Ministries International. Warning Radio is a listener-supported program. We need your donations in order to continue airing these Christ-centered prophetic programs. Send your checks or money orders to World Ministries International, Post Office Box 277, Stanwood, Washington, 98292. To donate securely by phone, call 360-629-5248. Visit our website to find other ways of giving and a wealth of information about World Ministries International and host Dr. Jonathan Hansen. The website is worldministries.org. There, you'll also have access to hundreds of previously aired radio programs, made-for-television videos, thousands of articles, Dr. Hansen's books, and travel itinerary. Again, the website is worldministries.org. The phone number is 360-629-5248. Remember, the Lord is not slow about the promise of His return, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for everyone to come to the repentance that leads to eternal life.